Welcome to Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. I'm Bobby Newman. This week, I'm speaking with Carrie Conway, Chief Research and Strategy Officer at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, about her publication on the research needs and research challenges of state education agencies. The article titled, What Research Do State Education Agencies Really Need? The Promise and Limitations of State Longitudinal Data Systems, examines the challenges faced by state education agencies in developing research agendas, building internal capacity for research, and working with partners to conduct research that informs state policy and practice. The study was published in Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis. Carrie, thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. What motivated you and your colleagues from Michigan and Tennessee to write this paper? Well, so as you mentioned, that came out in um, Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis, and it was actually in a special issue of the journal, which was a call for research papers that were using data, state longitudinal data systems, and papers about how researchers and policymakers can collaborate to use these data. So we felt like it would be an opportunity for us to talk about the use of state longitudinal data systems from the perspective of state agencies. And what we wanted to point out is that SLDSs, as as we call them, are a really crucial part of the infrastructure to facilitate research, but that they're insufficient on their own to answer all the questions states have about their work or to increase the influence of research on policymaking. So we thought it would be helpful if we shared our experiences as attempting to develop and implement research agendas to give researchers who are really the audience for an academic journal a better sense of the questions and challenges we face and could understand how we view research as fitting into the bigger picture of policymaking. For listeners who may not be familiar with the term SLDS, can you define it and perhaps give us an example from Massachusetts? Sure. In Massachusetts, um, our state longitudinal data system is composed of several sets of data that we collect from districts, um, sometimes once a year, sometimes more than once a year. So, for example, we have student-level information on their student demographics, their program participation. So, for example, whether they receive Title I services, whether they have um, special education services, that kind of thing. We get data on what courses students are taking. We have data on their student assessment from the state assessment. We have student discipline records. And for educators, we know where they work and what jobs they're assigned to. And so these are each their own separate data snapshot taken at various points in time. But they are linked through unique student and educator identification numbers. So we can use those unique IDs to merge together those snapshots and make it into a longitudinal data file. And so in the case of Massachusetts, we have data for students, um, some of it going back to 2001, 2002, and for educators back about to 2007, 2008. So these data sets were created originally mainly for federal reporting because there's all kinds of stuff we have to report to the federal government every year on. But they're obviously also useful for all sorts of other things. So just to give one example of the way we've used our SLDS in Massachusetts, um, we use it to do predictive modeling. So we predict whether students are on track, for example, to graduate from high school on time. And we actually provide that back to districts right at the beginning of the school year so that they can intervene and get kids back on track. So that's an example of the kind of thing that states do with SLDS. Obviously, it also helps facilitate research, but the primary purpose is really more around data reporting and providing services back to districts. So in your paper, you and your colleagues describe how the state education agencies tied their research policies to the state's education policy priorities. This sounds like good practice, but challenging to execute. What are some of the lessons you learned from trying to maintain the connections between the research agenda and the policy priorities? This is such a great question, and it's really been something we've shifted on over time. Um, When I started here at the agency uh, 11 years ago, we had more of a let a thousand flowers bloom strategy. Over time, we've iterated to a more strategic process. One dimension of that is that we go through an annual process of checking in with the program staff to help 
figure out what their priorities are. So I ask questions like, what are the big decisions you have coming up in the next year or two that we could plan for to, to provide some research to support? Are there big questions that they, have, they want to answer, or is there something that they really want to learn this year? And then my job is to figure out the resources to answer those questions, and that could be internal or external. So lots of different strategies for how to answer them, but that's part of it. Also, we've learned over time as we've worked with the same researchers, the researchers we work with, just the relationship has worked really well. It's been a high, policy, a high priority for policy and something where the, the relationship is strong. And those have developed now into more formal research practice partnerships. So, for example, we've been working with folks at MIT at the School Effectiveness and Inequality Institute for more than a decade on research related to charter schools and school choice. And we've been working for probably about four years now with um, folks at the Center for the Analysis of Longitudinal Data in Education Research on some work related to educator preparation and licensure. Um, but each of those started out as a small project, just a single study that then built over time. So, you know, we've got these partnerships that are on things that are very high policy priority for us, but I think it would be a mistake if we only worked with those four groups because we have lots of other questions and lots of other things going on and you never know when something that maybe isn't so high priority now might turn into something higher priority later. Um, this happened actually pretty recently. We've been working with Sean Doherty at, at University of Connecticut for um, since he was a graduate student on career and vocational technical education. And that was something that was like he came to us. It seemed like, sure, it would be use, useful to learn whether those schools seemed to be effective or not. But, you know, when our new governor came in two years ago, Governor Baker, this was a super high policy priority for him to really double down on career and vocational technical education. And so I felt really smart that we had had a project already up and running where we could learn more about that. So we already had some stuff to say and then, then we could expand it when it became a bigger priority. So I guess to sort of summarize uh, that, I would great. say that it's sort of a um, balance we need to make between prioritizing the agency's strategic questions and needs, but then also leaving some, a bit of flexibility or room for additional questions that may turn out to be useful later. Interesting. So what suggestions would you have for researchers who want to partner with state education agencies to conduct research? One thing to, to just begin with is that states have legitimate reasons why they might not want to share data or might move slowly. I mean, we're pretty open here in Massachusetts, but there are times when we may not want to know the answer to a question, often because of legal reasons. And even if we do want to know the answer, we might not have the capacity to provide the data to answer it. From a researcher perspective, coming into a state you're more likely to get a yes if what you're proposing has a clear benefit to the agency. And the way I frame that in my head is, what could the agency do differently if they knew the answer to this question? Another way to think about that or, or a way to get at, is the agency going to really care about this, is to just make sure you really understand the policy environment, policy environment and the key questions that the state might have. An example I have this, of this in the other direction is I had a graduate student come in recently interested in our state school choice policy, which districts choose whether they'd like to have the option of kids choosing in and out of their district. And he came into that first meeting, he had read up so extensively, he knew the state law in and out, he knew our policy and procedures in and out, he knew what data we had available. It made it much easier for us to say yes, because we knew we weren't going to have to spend a ton of time explaining to him how everything works. So once you've gotten in the door, then I think the last thing I'd say is that to really think of it as a long-term relationship, you're building trust, you're building relationships with people, it will take time, but it's worthwhile if you care about your research being used. I mean, to me, there's no better way to guarantee that your research will have an impact than to be working directly with the agency who could do something differently once they knew the answer to your question. But it's something that takes time. You, you need to maintain the relationship, sometimes build new relationships with multiple people because staff shift and change roles. And so it takes constant tending and care, but it pays off in the long run. 
Just out of curiosity, how many SEAs have a position like yours? Well, when I started 11 years ago, I was the only person in the country that I know of that had a, a job like mine. There's, I should start by saying, uh-huh. actually, that state education agencies have a lot of data capacity. They have to do all this reporting. So it's not that there aren't people who know how to run statistics. The people responsible for that are typically doing accountability or assessment or some other thing that's the kind of thing where there's always something urgent going on. There's always deadlines coming up and you really need to carve aside someone whose main focus is long-term strategic research agenda development. And that was the thing that I think a lot of states didn't have. Um, So for my first five years, I, I believe I was the only person who had a job like this. Six years or so ago, Nate Schwartz got hired in Tennessee and it was like, you know, an oasis in the desert for me to finally have a colleague I could talk to who was doing similar work and trying to accomplish similar things. But since then, it's really grown. I've, I keep a list to myself of, you know, the research-ish folks in state agencies. And at this point, I have about 15 or so states have at least a person, if not a team, that is trying to do longer-range strategic research, um, not just sort of quick turnaround type analysis. What are some of the opportunities that ESSA provides for states to connect research to policy and practice? Yeah, I'm really excited actually about the potential for ESSA to make to make some real change here. There's some new requirements in the law around implementing evidence-based interventions. Right now, that's particularly salient for the lowest performing schools because part of Title I requires them to implement an evidence-based practice. And then there's some places in the law where if a district chooses to use their ESSA funding in a particular way, for example, on class size reduction, they have to demonstrate that they're doing so in an evidence-based way. So that gives some leverage to, to states to, to promote that kind of thing. But the thing I'm actually really excited about is what the law calls Tier 4 evidence. ESSA actually defines four tiers of evidence that are related to the um, strength of the research methodology involved. Randomized control trials are the top tier, working down to things like correlational studies with strong controls. But one of the tiers is for interventions that have a strong rationale and that are being evaluated by the district implementing them. And a lot of the places that require evidence-based practice allow Tier 4 evidence to count as that type of practice. To me, this is like exactly the right way to think about how research should be embedded in district processes. I mean, I think researchers often think of research use as like districts are going to read their research paper and then go do something. And that does happen, and districts should be thinking about what prior research suggests might be effective. But what's much more important is that they evaluate what they are doing themselves so that they can improve over time in the same way that we at the state here evaluate what we're doing so that we can improve over time. And Tier 4 allows for that because they've chosen an intervention that's based in some sort of rationale, and they are evaluating it. So to me, to shift the needle on district practice in this area, that type of organizational shift is going to have the biggest impact. And I think that Tier 4 is a huge opportunity for districts to get better at that type of work. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how states and districts implement that in the next few years. Carrie Conway, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today about your study, What Research Do State Education Agencies Really Need? The Promise and Limitations of State Longitudinal Data Systems. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. To share your thoughts on today's topic or to subscribe to future episodes, visit CPRIHub.org. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.org. You can also keep up with all of our education-based interviews, video series, podcasts, and other content by following CPRI Hub on Twitter. We look forward to you joining the conversation.